Mark chapter 14. We continue our journey through Mark. And we'll begin tonight in verse number 10. You ever, uh, you ever have times in your life, seasons, moments, fleeting or not, where you're just sad? You can't even necessarily put your finger on why. Could be one thing, could be a lot of things. You're just, you're just sad. My soul, Jeremiah, made a whole ministry out of it. You're just sad. If I'm honest with you, that's where I'm at tonight. I'm sad. Now, I think there's probably some contributing factors to that. But I also think that maybe God has put me in this frame of mind on purpose. Because where we're headed in the narrative is sad. Jesus' life that has been so fraught with miracles and wonderments, all of a sudden, a pall just kind of falls over it, a darkness. And part of what contributes to that darkness is my fault, because part of it is my sin. And part of it is your sin. God didn't judge our sin on Jesus until the cross, but I believe it started inching ever closer to him, starting where we're reading. Verse 10 says, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, the 12 closest people to Jesus, went into the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. There's a sadness there. We're going to see that Jesus is understandably sad, but not for his sake. He's sad for Judas's sake. This sadness, as we work through chapters 14, 15, and 16, this sadness leads us to a supper. And after the supper is a seizure. They rest him in the garden. You know what that seizure leads to? A sham. Jesus' trial in every way, shape, and form was a sham. Within that sham was Peter's shame. Three times he denied him, just as Christ said he would. Following that shame... And that trial that was a sham, 
you see a shunning by the nation of Israel. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. And then we see the full picture of his suffering. For six hours he hung there. And then he slumbered. He lay dead for three days. I got good news for you. Next was a sunrise. And he walked out of that tomb alive. And the last thing he did in chapter 16 is he commissioned to us our expected service. Mark ends well. But we're going to go through some tough stuff to get there. We begin tonight with sadness. This first chapter in the last of Mark's story. Father, would you help us? God, there's so many people hurting tonight. We desperately need something from you. We ask that you bless your word and that you encourage us, strengthen us, Help us in the ways that only you can. Help me to rightly divide your word of truth. And there's so many times I come up short. There's so many times that I leave a lot to be desired in so many ways. As I've prayed to you so many times, just don't give up on me, Lord. Keep working on me. Keep making me more like Jesus. I got a long way to go. But you know my heart. And I pastor a people, we've all got a long way to go. But I believe we want to be like Jesus. This world needs us to be like Jesus. So help us, we pray. Do something unusual tonight, I pray. May it be so clearly you that anybody would know that man couldn't do this. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here to do whatever you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin, first of all, with sadness. Chapter, whatever this is, of this story. Sadness. Look at verse 10 again. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him, unto them. 
When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. They sought him, he might conveniently betray him. Now I want you to look at verse number 18. As they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. They began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It's one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. There was a great deal of desire in me to do a gospel harmony of everything that's recorded in the Gospels regarding this Last Supper, and uh, it's just too much going on. I mean, (laughs) if we include John's account, that adds four chapters. So if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to be as... You understand there's a lot more that goes on in this this than just what we're reading in Mark. But for time's sake, I'm just going to stick, for the most part, to Mark's account. And we see this sadness. We see, first of all, a sad response. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him unto them. Now, there is this... There is this... uh, this movement amongst people that study the Bible to find some kind of a pity for Judas. Poor Judas was just caught up in the intrigue of this whole thing. And, you know, it had been prophesied that somebody would betray Jesus and poor Judas this and poor Judas that. Don't don't let that enter into your thinking. Judas was willfully wicked. He was lost. He saw Jesus for who he was, and he rejected him for all of his own reasons, and Judas died, and he went to hell. Judas was not an unwilling participant. Judas was not caught up in the, in the gears of this whole thing. No, Judas was a wicked, wicked man. In fact, Jesus in John 17 called him the son of perdition. What is perdition? That's hell. He's a son of hell. Oliver B. B. Green was of the conviction that the Antichrist will be Judas reincarnated. I don't hold to that view. But during the tribulation, I may look over the portals of heaven to see if he was right. (laughs) Not that I knew what Judas looked like. I don't think it works like that. But I know this. Judas, you can't be possessed without opening up your life to that foolishness. And the Bible says Satan himself entered into Judas. That's pretty open to satanic things, isn't it? When you invite the devil himself in. But there were some that would find some kind of an escape route for Judas. It's not there. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Exodus 21 tells us that's the price of a slave. It says if you have a manservant or a maidservant that an ox or an ox or some animal like that kills them, then you owe that person, that master, 30 shekels of silver. That's the value of a servant. We think, my soul. Judas sold him for very little, didn't he? But let's be honest. We've sold Jesus out for less. 
We've sold Jesus out for what our coworkers think. We've sold Jesus out over a television program or a favorite CD. We've sold Jesus out for friends we should have, which should never have had to begin with. We've sold Jesus out for a moment's pleasure. I say we, I've done it. I've done it. We all have. But this final move, what, what precipitated Judas finally pulling the trigger on this thing and going through with this plan? A lot of people take it as maybe being a response in anger to Jesus' rebuke back in verse number 6. Remember, who was the author of this discontent among the disciples when she broke over that, opened that alabaster box of ointment? The author was Judas. And when Jesus said, let her alone, I think it's very possible that Jesus stopped. He looked right at Judas and said, let her alone. And at that point, Judas had had enough. It was time to enact his plan that he had hatched long before, that he was going to betray him. Because Jesus didn't live up to his expectations. Judas wanted somebody that would, that would defeat the Romans and, and do all the things that Judas wanted done. And Jesus didn't live up to his expectations, so he decided to turn on him. And right now, there are churches that have empty spots all over the world because there were Christians that used to sit in those pews and God didn't live up to their expectations, so they turned on him. They'll still go to heaven, but they'll answer for it. How do you respond? How do I respond when God corrects us? Has God ever had to do that to you through his Holy Spirit? That's enough, Andy. Sometimes he uses people to do it, doesn't he? That's enough. You've overstepped. How do we respond? In this sadness, we see a sad response. I'll tell you what else we see. We see a sad rejection. Verse 18. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the order of service, if you will, of a Passover meal. But there's some things that have already happened here. They've already drank four cups of wine there's something to be said about that wine that i'll get to get to later but they've drank four cups of wine they've sung the first half of what's called the hallel psalms which uh psalm 113 to 114 and jesus according to john 13 has already washed the disciples' feet. That's including Judas's. Ponder that for a second. Does Jesus know Judas is going to betray him? Yes, he does. And yet, the God, the creator God of the universe, kneels on the dusty floor and washes the feet of his betrayer. Well, I can't be kind to that person. They hurt me. Yes, you can. Because Jesus knelt in humility before his betrayer. And if he can do that, he has every right to expect us to be humble too. 
Jesus is already offering overtures to Judas. Now, the Bible predicted that Jesus would be betrayed. I don't know exactly how this would work out, but do I believe that in that moment Judas could have repented and asked for forgiveness? I do. I don't know how that would have worked out for Jesus to still then be betrayed. But he could have. You see, Jesus washed his feet, but I'll tell you what else he did. According to John 13, which by the way, John 13 through 17 is an expanded account of everything that's going on in this upper room. Where they were sitting mattered. Now, I'm not going to illustrate it to you visually, because the last time I did that, somebody took a picture and it's since popped up here and there. And I've just learned from that not to trust any of you people and uh, to pray for you all the harder in your wickedness. But the table probably is no higher than these pew seats. There's pillows. They don't sit at a chair and a table like we do. They're reclined on their elbow. Okay. Jesus is reclined in the center with his elbow, and his body, for the most part, is straight back. To his right is John. So when, when you hear the Bible talk about John laying upon his breast, it doesn't mean that it's like this. It means that John's head is where Jesus' chest is. Okay. But to his left is Judas. And traditionally in a Jewish household, to the left of the host is a place of great, great honor. Who decided where everybody sat? You have to believe the host did. Hey, Judas. Sit right here. What's he saying? Judas. You can still make this right. He talks about he who has the who's dipping with him in the dish. To offer the sop to someone was also a token of peace. So he offers the sop to Judas. What's he saying? We can be at peace, Judas. You don't have to do this. This is how bad Judas is. He knows exactly what Jesus is doing. He knows what he's offering, and he rejects it. He rejects it. How do I know that Jesus is sad? Specifically for Judah, for Judas rather. Because he doesn't give up on him. When they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Matthew 26, verse 50, what does Jesus say to Judas 
as he kisses him. What's he call him? Friend. Even then, he's offering Judas a way out. And he doesn't take it. Judas kisses the very blood. Remember, as he prayed, drops of great blood. He kissed the very blood that could have saved him. And I wonder how many people have sat in church services or across from someone giving them the gospel that figuratively speaking kissed the very blood that could have saved them. That close. And didn't. It gives new depth to what David wrote in Psalm 41.9. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted who did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, David was speaking about Ahithophel. But the prophecy speaks to the Messiah. We see sadness, don't we? But that sadness takes place at a supper. What do we see at that supper? First of all, we see a prepared Savior. A prepared Savior. Look at verse 12, would you? Hello. Verse 12. In the first day of the week, um, not the first day of the week, Lord, please help me know how to read. The first day of the of unleavened bread. When they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house. The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? There's a tradition that says this was John Mark's house. I don't know that that's the case, but that's a tradition. He will show you, verse 15, he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth, came into the city, and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. So what's happened so far? Um, we see that, that Jesus had already prepared for the needs of, of the Passover. Um, some people try to find something spooky here, just like with the, the donkeys that he rode in on. Uh, I think that Jesus had, had pre-planned this thing, had met with somebody and said, I'd like to celebrate the Passover at your house. Can you arrange that? Absolutely, Lord, we can take care of that for you. And he had already taken care of it. He was prepared. Uh, the way the Passover worked is you would go and you would, you would select your lamb and they would slaughter the lamb at the, the temple and then you would bring it back. But you had to celebrate the Passover within Jerusalem. And so, you know, they have to come into the city, they're in this upper room, and they celebrate the Passover. So that's the preparations that, that Peter and John, who we know from another gospel, it's Peter and John, are making. Okay? And so Jesus has already set everything up. It, it's interesting to me, even to the point of, um, well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. But he's already prepared for that. But you know, he hasn't just prepared for the needs of Passover. He's prepared for Judas's treachery. If Judas knows 
where the Passover is going to be celebrated, that'd be an easy place to bring the, the soldiers, wouldn't it? Yeah. But Judas doesn't know until he gets there. It's interesting. Jesus, forgive me for how this is going to sound. Jesus uses a little bit of sanctified sneakiness. Because what, what, has been, what do they give as the signal? You see a man carrying a water pot. He'll be the one to show you where to go. Now, you may not know this, but that's significant. Only women carried water pots. So if you see a man carrying a water pot, that's going to stand out, isn't it? You remember the woman in John 4? Samaritan woman went out carrying a water pot, didn't she? You see a man carrying a water pot, that's your guy. Probably one of the servants. And so they go and they say, are you uh, the one we're supposed to meet? Well, do you see any other men out here carrying water pots? No, okay. And so uh, they go and find their place. And Jesus has prepared. See, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he prepared accordingly because he never stopped being in control. You understand that. He was arrested exactly where he was supposed to be arrested. At exactly the right time and exactly the right way. Judas thought he was in control of this situation, but he wasn't. Jesus never stopped being in control. By the way, as they nailed him to the cross, he was in control then too. There's never been a moment that God was out of control. Not one moment. And so we see a Savior who was prepared. So they get in there. And at that supper, we see a precious symbol. Actually, two of them. Verse 22. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It's important to see that last word, body. Body speaks of his flesh. It does not speak of his bones because we know that a sacrifice could not have broken bones. None of Jesus' bones were broken. Dislocated, yes, but not broken. But was his body broken? It was torn. It was rent. We did this in Bible, Bible class eh, not too long before the end of the semester. I brought in a piece of matzah, and uh, I showed them. And this matzah is very similar to what they would have used then. There were three things about matzah that it's so interesting to me. Any Jew that observes Passover using traditional kosher matzah, there's three things about that matzah, and they have no idea what it stands for. First of all, it's unleavened. Now, they look back to Exodus when they were to depart fast, and so they didn't put leaven in their bread, and they see it as you know part of having to leave fast. And that's true. But leaven's also a picture of sin. And the body of Messiah could have no sin. So it's unleavened. There's something else about it. It has holes in it. It's pierced. What's it say in Zechariah and Revelation? They shall look on him who they what? Pierced. They pierced him. One other thing. There's lines on it. And the way that it's baked. Some would call those lines stripes. (laughs) 
by his stripes, we are healed. It's a tragic thing for me that every time our Jewish friends have Passover, they hold such a beautiful symbol of their Messiah and have no idea. The precious symbol of the bread. Number two, the precious symbol of the wine. Verse 23, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. He said to them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. My soul, the fussing that Christians do over whether or not the wine was fermented or unfermented. I have seen guys who I like, respect, go to great lengths to argue that anybody believes that this was just grape juice, unfermented, they're just unsophisticated rubes that don't understand their Bible and everything else. It was wine. It says wine. The word for wine, oinos, can mean fermented juice or it can mean unfermented juice, depending on the context. So if it says somebody drank wine, oinos, and got drunk, guess what? It was fermented. But another thing to consider is that back then, wine production wasn't done the same way it is now. And a lot of times what they would do is they would carry fermented wine for one purpose, and that was to put in their water to kill the microbes that was bad for them. And what that would do is it would water the wine down. The wine became ineffective. It wasn't, it wasn't the kind that could get you drunk. It's interesting. Even today, when they celebrate the Passover, they begin with four glasses of wine that are watered down. So whether you want to say it was fermented or unfermented or whatever, I believe, I believe that it's unfermented. I believe it's grape juice. And I don't care who thinks I'm some kind of stupid rube about it. I don't care. Because you'll never convince me that the whole of Scripture teaches to stay away from alcohol, but then Jesus imbibed it. You'll never convince me of that. What did he make at the wedding at Cana? He made the best grape juice you ever had. Well, you're just an idiot. Fine, then I'm an idiot. But I'm a teetotaling idiot. (laughs) People argue about social drinking and everything else. Well, let me explain something to you. You can argue about that all you want to, but I can give you list after list after list of lives that have been destroyed by alcohol. I want no part of it. And if only we would work as hard to defend what we know the Scripture commands as we do what we hope it allows. These same people will not get fired up about soul winning. They won't get fired up about being in church. They won't get fired up about giving. They won't get fired up about reading your Bible and praying, but they'll get fired up about whether or not they can have their booze. I'm sorry. I got no time for that foolishness. 
And at the end of the day, if fermentation is a leavening agent, and it is, and this represents the blood of Jesus Christ, it had no sin. And if the bread had to be unleavened, seems to me the juice ought to be unleavened too. Well, Andy, I'm a social drinker. I still love you. It's no good for you. Let it go. Let it go. Because why do we drink? It makes me feel better. So God's not enough. Something that is just interesting to think about that watered down wine. And I confess to you that I don't know if this is a connection or not, but I'm going to read it to you and you let the Holy Spirit tell you whether or not it is. John 19.34. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Hmm. The blood saves, doesn't it? What's the water do? Washes. The washing of the water by the what? The word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the what? The word of God. He says, do this in remembrance of me. You know, remembrance goes beyond a memory. It is literally a present participation in a past event. That means every time we take of the Lord's Supper, no, it doesn't become the body and blood of the Lord. That's called transubstantiation, and that's not true. But I'll tell you what it does do. It celebrates something that happened in the past that's still working. It's just like Pentecost. Oh, Lord, send us another Pentecost. Why? The first one still works just fine. So we see a prepared Savior. We see a precious symbol. You know what else we see? We see a promise spoken. Verse 25. Don't miss this. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot of significance there, but here's what we're going to leave it with right now. He's predicting a future in which he's the king. He's making them a promise. I'm not going to drink of this again until we do it in my kingdom. So what's that tell you? I'm going to have a kingdom. Everything that's about to happen, fellas, is temporary. I promise. I promise. It's temporary. But then they finish in verse 26 with a powerful song. Now, when we close the Lord's Supper, we always sing a hymn, and, and Brother Davies usually chooses one. And, um, and, uh, um, and that's good. But we got a pretty good, pretty good idea of what they sang. If they followed traditional Passover ritual, they sang the second part of the Hallel, which was Psalms 115 through 118. Have you ever wondered what Jesus sounded like when he sang? I have to believe it was beautiful. But you know what? It's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that he didn't have a great singing voice. You say, what? Is it a sin to not have a great singing voice? No. Yeah, some of you said, hope not. <laughs> no. 
But whether he was on key or off key or a rich baritone or a deep bass or something else, doesn't matter. Turn to Psalm 118. Given what we know about what's about to happen, let's think on this. Let's think on the Son of God singing at the conclusion of this Passover Seder. Knowing what's about to happen, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Knowing what's about to happen. Look at verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Knowing what's about to happen. Verse 11. They compassed me about. Yea, they compassed me about. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Knowing what's about to happen. Verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. What's about to happen to me, fellas? This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. What's about to happen to me, fellas? Abraham rejoiced to see my what? Day. What's he talking about? This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What did this sadness yield to when it was all said and done at the close of this supper? Joy. How? Go to Hebrews. Knowing what's about to happen to him. Verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the what? Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Somewhere in all of that sorrow, somewhere in all of that sadness, There was a smile. How? 
because Jesus knew what nobody else that day knew. I'm about to fix it all. Everything that Adam messed up and every human being since him, I'm about to fix it all. And not only am I going to fix it, I'm going to give mankind more in me than they ever lost in Adam. Adam.